is a good leader? Who is a good spiritual leader? But we're going to talk about that as we look at 1 Timothy chapter 3 today. And Paul talks to Timothy about leadership. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. My name is Rod Hembry. I'm Janice. And this is Bible Discovery TV, a program taking you through the Bible from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. We do that every year. This is very exciting. And we're going to teach in just about three minutes on 1 Timothy chapter 3. It's really something. But Ryan is here as well, right? Yeah. Today I'm talking about polygamy in the Bible. Is God for it or is he against it? Very good question. Janice? I'm putting my glasses on because I need to see some things to consider. Yes. And actually, I have to have glasses too. So there you go. It seems like that happens when you get older, but that's okay. Anyway, let's get into the Bible today and let's learn from 1 Timothy chapter 3 what God desires in leadership. First Timothy 3, 1 through 13. This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous. One who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest, being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. But let these also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons being found blameless. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. Paul begins to change his style of writing and the Holy Spirit helps him and, and really inspires him. And he begins to write to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3. Now, throughout history, we fall into a pattern in which leaders become offset. In other words, they become seeking of their own personal gain and fame rather than appointed task to lead. Some would suggest that we are in such a time right now. But now, hold on a minute. Worldly leaders are different than biblical leaders. God spoke through the Apostle Paul and told Timothy 
how to select church leadership. Many people today associate their leadership with their success and failure. But God never sets that in place. 1 Timothy chapter 3 clearly makes known not only the moral requirements, but also the attitudes of those who are selected by God to become leaders and to become pastors. There are very specific qualifications and spiritual requirements that only the Holy Spirit can achieve in us if we are selected to become church leaders. That's what ordination means, selecting to become a church leader. There are two specific types of leaders mentioned. They are pastors and deacons, or senior elders and deacons. Now, this is very important, and, and I've taught this a lot, and I, I love to teach it again. Every time I teach it, it's fascinating because God speaks to us. Leaders in the church. Now, I'm speaking specifically of spiritual leadership. The world is different. But I would suggest that if the world would listen to this, they might actually have a better shot at leading. But that's nevertheless here nor there. But the church itself is what we're talking about today. And so as we focus on that, if you don't have a Bible guide, I want to encourage you to get a hold of one by calling us or writing to us or going to BibleDiscoveryTV.com. When you go to BibleDiscoveryTV.com, click on the page where the Bible guide is shown and it directs you to a donate page. May I say thank you very much for your donations. Father, I pray that you would help the people who make the donations to be blessed in this time. Help people, Father, to know the truth about who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. But when we pray about this, it takes you to a page where you can download it as it's printed. And when we pray about this today, I want to think about how God wants us to understand leadership. Father, we are thinking of leaders and we are thinking of politics and everything else, but we're not talking about political structures as much. We're talking about what do you desire in the character of leaders? Because we are spiritual people, not just physical people. Help us to hear you today, Holy Spirit, as we listen carefully to what you have said in 1 Timothy chapter 3. In the name of Jesus Christ, and we said together, amen. 1 Timothy chapter 3, that's an interesting passage. Here's what it says. This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the possession or the position of bishop or pastor, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, not easy to blame. He must be the husband of one wife, not many wives. He must be temperate. He must be sober-minded. He must be of good behavior. He must be hospitable. He must be able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he be able to take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, 
he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Okay, did you get all that? The pastor or overseer of any church has a specific moral code he must live and fulfill. Beloved, only the Holy Spirit can help us achieve the leadership attitudes and codes that God desires. Only the Holy Spirit can help us achieve that. Man's education can't. Getting a degree in this or a degree in that or ordination, that doesn't do it. Ordination is following the lead of the Holy Spirit. Very important to remember. Very important to remember. Okay, chapter 3, verse 8. Likewise, deacons, these are deacons, they must be reverent, not double-tongued, double rather, not given to much wine, not greedy for money, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of faith with a pure conscience. But let these also first be tested and then let them serve as deacons being found blameless. A deacon must also meet and live specific qualifications and moral code. Deacons are spiritual leaders within the church, but are not required to be able to teach. Now notice that. Very important. Because God desires the spiritual application. Very important. But not the teaching as much. That's just for the bishops. Now, that's something very important today because there's been a mix-up of a lot of confusion over church leadership. But we need to remember that this is how God has put it in the Bible. That's what he said. Now, let's go back to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 11. It says, likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers. They must be temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husband of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in faith, which is Christ in Christ Jesus. Okay, what we're trying to say here is wives of church leaders are to live by a moral code as well. The active work of the Holy Spirit is the only way that we can lead. Beloved, God says in my church, I need you to lead and you can only lead as you allow the Holy Spirit to work in you and be a part of you. So as we think about this today, there's a lot of things going through our heads, I'm sure. But Father, I pray today that you would touch each of us with the reality of leadership. Help us to know what it is and help us, Father, to be able to become leaders, but help us to know the difference, Lord, on how to support, what to support, who to support, and the whole business. Because, Father, today the leaders are two, man and woman, with you as the head. Help us, Lord, in Jesus' name. And we all said together with, with the help of the Holy Spirit, amen and amen.
Welcome back to the program. In my segment today, I'm going to be examining an apparent inconsistency regarding God's character. And the specific question is, does God approve or disapprove of polygamy? As an example, consider the passage in 1 Kings chapter 11, which records that King Solomon, a man clearly used by God, had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Then we read in passages like 1 Timothy chapter 3 that such men ought to be the husband of just one wife. Now, is this an inconsistency on God's part? Let's study. Many believe that the Bible is littered with errors and inconsistencies and therefore could not possibly be the Word of God. One of these supposed inconsistencies is that God is seemingly both for and against polygamous relationships. For example, Abraham, Jacob, Moses, King David, and the like all had more than one wife. Perhaps worst of all was King Solomon. 1 Kings 11.3 records that he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. All of these men were used mightily by God, yet 1 Timothy 3.2 commands that such men be the husband of one wife. How can this be? It is important to understand that the Bible is not a book of myth, but a book that reports actual history with real people, real places, and real events. And just like a modern news reporter, the biblical authors report the truth of what happened. However, it does not mean that they necessarily condone it. Indeed, we read in other places in Scripture instances of lying, murder, theft, and rape, yet these are in no way condoned. On the contrary, they are considered shameful. For example, in Genesis 2, God established marriage as something between one man and one woman, and in Deuteronomy 17.17, commands that kings should not multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Polygamy was never a part of God's original plan, and is never promoted as a good thing in the Bible. Indeed, these relationships brought nothing but judgment and hardship. Abraham's marriage to Hagar brought strife to the family, while God punished King David for his adultery with Bathsheba. And 1 Kings 11.3 concludes by saying that King Solomon's many wives turned his heart away from God. Some try to argue that God condoned Jacob's polygamous relationships, since this is where the 12 tribes of Israel came from. However, just because God used sinful relationships to complete his task does not mean he condoned it. The reality is that no one besides Christ Jesus is without sin. So as I said in this segment, it's very important to understand that the Bible records real events involving real people, including their mistakes. But just because it reports on these things doesn't mean that God condones it. Yes, he permitted it for a time, but that doesn't mean he approves of it. On the contrary, when you pay close attention to the scriptures, it quickly becomes obvious how polygamous relationships brought nothing but strife and trouble to those involved. So all that to say that there is no inconsistency or contradiction because God is never for polygamy. You know, it's important to remember that when you look at Abraham and you look at some of the other people um, and, and you look at Solomon and polygamy was a big problem. Polygamy, many marriages or many people you're married to, that becomes a big problem. And, uh, you know, Ecclesiastes is a good example of that. You yeah, know? absolutely. And yeah. David, he wrote the Psalms, but even he had several wives, and that's not good. You know, and it was a, his family was a mess. In fact, uh, it was. Yeah, in many ways. It was. And today, in the New Covenant, that's different, because the New Covenant, Jesus Christ died and gave his 
a life for our sins and paid the cost of sin. So that's really, really interesting. Okay, Janice. Well, so that I can leave enough time for our special guest today, because I know you're going to want to hear what he has to say, I just wanted to give us some things to consider from this passage that we're reading in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And I wanted to take a look at verses 14 and 15. Paul writes, These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. So I've written myself some notes here. The house of God, this refers to the church as the family of God. The church of the living God highlights the church as the gathering where God most clearly shows his presence. And the pillar and the ground of truth, God has entrusted us or the church with the task of promoting and protecting the gospel of Jesus Christ. These are three really important things for us to consider. The church is made up of the family of God. We are brothers and sisters. Are we representing our Heavenly Father well? Do we know His Word? Are we following Him? The church is made up of all kinds of people in various stages of life. We are, each one of us, a work in progress. None of us has arrived yet. And we need to act like that. We, we need to know how to act and respond according to our Father and what He has told us through His Son, Jesus Christ. We need to learn through reading the Bible and in prayer, relationship with God. This is how we learn to live, how to act and react with one another and live in the world that we're living in today. And the Lord Jesus is the head of the church. He is our head. And how are we representing Him these days in the church? These are some of the things that we need to consider. Good questions, hard questions, really. Uh, and you need to answer them personally. Yeah. I mean, if you, we are each member of the body of Christ. And so each one of us individually have to take a look at ourselves first and make sure that we're living our lives properly first yeah. and then act together in the church. That's, a, that's really good. That's excellent, Janice. Very good. Fascinating. Now, let me let me ask a question to uh -huh. Richard, because Richard, yesterday we talked about you going to school, making a decision in 1979 when you're 10 years old. Right. And it didn't really hit till you were 23. And I ask you a question because you studied electronics and you graduated. And I yeah. ask you a question. When you read Genesis in the Bible, what did you think about it? Pick it up there. <laughs> yeah, and I was saying that uh, I didn't really think about it. <laughs> exactly. And I was, I was mentioning that I was challenged for, from some of the guys that I worked with in electronics. Um, you know, did God use the Big Bang? And my answer, it was totally embarrassing. It was kind of like, well, maybe, I mean, the Bible says God made light and maybe the Big Bang's light. And, and, I, and I just thought, I can't even explain the Bible to me. Forget about trying to share the gospel with other people. And I just remember being, I had a very low faith, a very low understanding of scripture and creation and go, just going on from there. Uh, just just not not really trusting the Bible. It, it Actually, it wasn't trust. It was just ignorance. I was you, just ignorant. You knew, you knew the Lord. <laughs> you knew Jesus Christ. Yes. But you were facing this reality that the Bible had to make sense to you. Sure. In a sense, yep. you had to be comfortable with understanding it before you could explain it to somebody else. Absolutely. Like any other topic, 
uh, you have you have to know the topic before you can explain it to someone else. And don't you think too, because we were talking about this in the break, that sometimes those of us that grew up in the church, we just get so comfortable in the culture of that church. There are disadvantages, right? Aren't there? Because yeah. you're never really challenged until you you are removed from that, and then you have other your peers questioning that. Then and and it's things that you've never really yeah thought. Thought yeah. through. Yeah, it's and you get great. Caught. It's, it's a wonderful blessing to grow up in the church. Yes. It is a wonderful blessing. We shouldn't right. you know, oh, no, poo poo that. that. But no. uh, people who grow up in a pagan environment, when God saves them, they know it. Yes. There's no question. Hmm. Uh, when, I, when I made a decision in 1979, I was in an environment that was sort of moralistic, and you can't, you can't really, well, has, has my life changed? Have I become mm-hmm. more, is, is God growing me spiritually? And and uh, it's difficult to tell. So when when you find this problem, so how did you solve the problem? How did you understand what the Bible said? And how did you get to that? I sought out resources by people who had studied those portions of scripture and, uh, and were commenting on them. And those resources were extremely, extremely helpful to my faith. Hmm. So, so you studied this over the, the next couple of years? Yeah, then? I just recognized that I was not the first person to ask difficult questions of the scripture. And so you seek out uh, resources where people who've had the same questions as me have worked through those questions and you can you can follow their logic through it and you can reason, you know, hmm, okay, it, does that make sense? Does that work? How does that fit with scripture? And and you you kind of you grow that way, right? People stand on the shoulders of the giants who've come before you who've gone through these challenges already. There's, there's a lesson there, right? We're, this is not the first generation of Christians. We have a rich history of Christianity and many people who've dealt with these issues. That's, that's fascinating because uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15 says, and 16 says that the scripture is good for teaching. Yeah. And uh, that, you know, to teach the, the good man, the, the godly man, all the right things. So you yep. understood that and you realized that. Now, the question is, how long did that take you? To search out that scripture and get it. It's ongoing. Exactly. It, it's ongoing. It doesn't stop. <laughs> so, yeah. so then when, when could you finally explain the creation to somebody if they would ask you, well, come on, God didn't make the universe and, and, and everything in six days. That's ridiculous. That, that came progressively as, as, you, as you're challenged by other people or even, even you challenge yourself. There's questions that come in, you know, well, how long? Did it take God to create? When did God create? Um, what about the flood? What effect did the flood have on the surface features of the earth? Is it just a, we know that even little floods have great effect. They rip down houses, they take out roads, they take down bridges. What about a global flood? How deep was the water? Was it a mile deep, two miles deep? What kind of damage would that do to the earth? You know, and, and so those kinds of, you think about those things and then the Bible says it was a global flood. And the Genesis account is, is a account, an, a historical account. Some people say it's a poetic account, but there's, we have great examples of Hebrew poetry, Psalms and Proverbs, most notably. And you can see a structure there with parallelism, for example, that, that is a feature of Hebrew poetry and some other things. And then you look at Hebrew poetry and you look at Genesis and Genesis is not written as poetry, as Hebrew poetry. It's written as a historical account. So if it's historical, then God created in six days and you can parse out the meaning of the word day. The word day has a range of different meanings. And you, you figure out what does the word day mean here, not over here. Over here it means something else. What does it mean in Genesis 1? And you, you, from the biblical text, you develop a Christian way 
of viewing the world, including all the sciences that relate to origins. So the day Yom uh, is, yeah. is what does it mean when he says the first day created light and darkness? So what does that mean when it says and the evening and the morning were the first Yom or first day? Well, you, you, would, you would look at that word day the way we look at every single word that we read in the English language or whatever language uh, uh, people are speaking. You look at the context, right? The first time the word day appeared, the word day has about a dozen different meanings, both in Hebrew and in English. And, and there's figures of speech and so on. Go ahead, make my day if you're familiar with <laughs> movies from the 70s and that kind of thing. It's a figure of speech. And so you've got different meanings. The first time the word day appears is in verse 5 of chapter 1. It's, it appears twice and it has a different meaning both times. God called the light day and the darkness he called night and there was evening and there was morning the first day. That first meaning of the word day, what, what does that mean? God called the light day. Well, that's referring to the daylight portion of an earth rotation, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's not hard to figure out. And then God, and, and he called, and so, so God called the light day and the darkness he called night and there was evening and there was morning the first day. And evening, what's that? That's a sunset, right? A, mm-hmm. What's a morning? That's a sunrise, right? There's the first day, there's a second day, third day, four, all the way to seven. It's talking about a day-night cycle. Of, of a full rotation of the earth. That's the meaning of the word day in that location. It doesn't always mean that everywhere in the Bible. It's used in a variety of different ways, like most words. Mm-hmm. And so you get the meaning from the Bible, from God's word. This is absolutely fascinating. Now we'll get back to this uh, on the next program. Call your friends <laughs> and call everybody because this is a great series of programs with Richard Fangrad from Creation Ministries International Canada. And uh, we're talking about uh, how his involvement uh, and and when Jesus became more than a name to him and all of that. But on the next program, we'll talk more about this. So in the meantime, let's get back to the people who've written in with their prayer request and they put them on our prayer. Watch him pray. So let's take a look at that. Today we need to pray, and as we pray, think about this. Think about church leadership. Your church, my church, other churches. Lord, we pray for the spiritual leaders in our churches. I pray that the spiritual leaders would learn how to follow your Holy Spirit. Father, I also want to pray something else. I pray that I would learn how to listen to your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' wonderful name, make it so. Amen.